So I want to kick off this Christmas by showing you a video that I bet every single parent in this room has experienced at least once in Christmas morning. Take a look at this. Anybody ever been there? Come on, don't be shy. Just me? You guys are, anyway. We all know what it's like to be disappointed by the presents that come our way. But as adults, we're just better at hiding it, right? At disguising it, faking it. Now, for instance, you might be married and your husband comes home and you've told him that you want a pair of boots for Christmas. And you told him everything he needed to know. The size, the brand, the color. But your husband wants to think outside of the shoebox, so he comes home with a box and it looks like the right size, the right way, and you open it up, and instead of your boots, you get like a box of Nutrisystem. <laughs> you wanted a toy, it's not what you wanted, right? Or your husband, this has happened to me, your husband wants a new iPhone Max, the XS Max, it's the newest phone out in the market today, and everybody wants it, so he gets the package and it's the right size, you shake it, it's the right way, and I open it up and it's no clippers. It's not what I wanted, I wanted a toy. That's because sometimes, listen, sometimes you get what you need, not what you want. In fact, take a look at our key scripture this morning. It comes from Romans chapter 15, and it is so important because this morning we're gonna talk about abiding hope. And it says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice the phrase, then you will overflow with confident hope. And the reason we want to talk about that this morning is because my guess, for some of you, if you were honest, you're not overflowing with hope right now. And you're not, for some of you, not even looking forward to Christmas 2018. In fact, some of you just want it to be over as soon as possible. Because you wanted a toy. Things haven't turned out like you thought and like you hoped. Now, some of you finished college this year and the job market is hard and you find yourself having to move in with your parents and you're not happy about it and just so you know, your parents aren't probably happy about it either. Life has not turned out the way you hoped. You wanted a toy. Some of you were hoping that this Christmas that you would have a child to celebrate Christmas with, and infertility happened, or the adoption fell through, or the miscarriage left a hole in your heart, and just seems like no one understands. Maybe you'll have a, an empty chair this Christmas. 
because you buried a loved one. You're going to miss their laugh, their presence, their love. Some of you got married thinking it was going to be happily ever after, and then you unwrapped the gift. And it wasn't happily married after. And now you're throwing around the D word, you know, disillusionment, disappointment, and even divorce. Oh, what a message, right? <laughs> Maybe Christmas is a tense time because you have to deal with relatives that you have unresolved issues with. Maybe it means that you have to deal with ex-spouses and other people raising your kids. Maybe even after the service, you're going to walk out into the parking lot all alone and you're going to see other couples holding hands and you're going to feel lonely because you wanted a toy. But life didn't turn out that way. Well, this morning... I do have good news, I promise. I want to unpack a book of the Bible that, that I bet you probably have not heard a Christmas story from in the past. Maybe you have. I don't think so. And at first glance, you read the story, and it's about a family that appears to have no significance to the Christmas story. And in your Bible, if you guys want to open it up, if not, it'll be on the screen. You can turn there. But it's, it's just four chapters long, and it's the book of Ruth. Now, right before the book of Ruth, let me just tell you, and the book of Ruth begins with an era of the judges. And the judges were ruling Israel at the time, and they were right before the time of kings, if you study your Bible. And at this time, it's very important to understand that there was a famine in the land. Now, chapter 1 starts by saying there was a man named Elimelech, interesting name, who decided to move his family away from the promised land, away from the land of Canaan during this time of famine, to the land of Moab, which was a foreign land. Now, Elimelech, his name is very important because it meant, my God is king. But he didn't live up to his name. Instead of trusting the one true living God to supply their food needs, he decides to trust in a foreign land and their food supply and moves to Moab. He had a wife. His wife's name is Naomi. Now, Naomi means pleasant and sweet. And they have two sons. They, of course, they had bizarre names. Their names was Malon and Kilion, which literally means sick and dying. So the, it's not in your outline, but if you want to write it down, the first point is, please don't name your kids that. It's not a good idea. It's like saying, hey, I want you to be my boy, Ebola, and his brother, Salmonella. Nice to meet you. <clears throat> the Bible sometimes. You know, as the story unfolds, these two boys grew up, and they fall in love with two Moabite women. And again, remember, they're in a foreign land, in a pagan culture, and this pagan culture does not believe in God. So the, by the time we get into the end of the second paragraph of Ruth, tragedy strikes. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. And we don't know what he dies of, if it's old age or he gets hit by a camel. We just don't know. Then unbelievably, a short time later, both of her adult sons, sick and dying, die. What a surprise, right? But so now you have three widows here. You got Naomi, her two daughter-in-laws, all sharing the Kleenex box, all grieving the loss of their husbands. And I, I, swear, I can't even imagine losing your, your, your spouse and, and your two adult-age sons all at the same time. All three of these women were battling what I think a lot of people battle during the holiday season, especially during Christmas, and that is loss and loneliness. 
Naomi decides after her husband's death that the best thing for her to do is to just to move back to her homeland, to the land of Canaan, to the promised land, because she was a foreigner. And in fact, if she would have stayed in Moab, there is no welfare system, no one to take care of her. There is no church there to take care of her. There was no help. Now, her daughter-in-laws were also, as you know, were battling loneliness, and they were so attached to their mother-in-law, Naomi, that they decided that they were going to move back with her. They were going to leave back their land, the land of Moab, and go back to the promised land with Naomi. Well, about halfway down the road, Naomi tried to turn them around, and she said, you know, girls, you guys don't need the baggage of a mother-in-law hanging over your neck. Why don't you guys go back to Moab and, what you, you know, find yourself another man? And one of them, her name was Orpah, took her up on that offer and went back. Can you guys just imagine naming your kid Orpah? By the way, I did try to convince my wife to name our daughter Alexis Orpa because I thought Orpa Lopez had a nice ring to it. <laughs> she didn't go for it. Anyway, so Orpa turns around and she goes back. The other daughter, her name is Ruth, which is, we're reading the book of Ruth, goes on and, and stays with Naomi. And then Ruth makes this statement to Naomi in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. She says, Naomi, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates you and me. So Ruth and Naomi, they take this adventurous trip back to Naomi's hometown, and her hometown is Bethlehem. And all of a sudden, here it is. We get the first clue as to why this story is so important to the Christmas story. See, Bethlehem is only like 200 people at this time. That's why we sing, Old Little Town of Bethlehem. Everyone knows each other. It's a small town. So when Naomi returns, of course, it's big news. And everyone's talking, and they're probably thinking, you know, is that her? Is that Naomi? Is she back in town? Who's that other girl with her? And remember, she left, and her name means pleasant and sweet. And then Naomi goes back, and she says, don't call me that anymore. My life has been bitter. And I can just imagine the expression on her face as she wrote these words, or as she said these words in verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. In other words, don't call me pleasant and sweet. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant and sweet? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. I think all of us could imagine right now that she's angry. She's mad at God. She, she, God, you see, has not, according to her, not held up his end of the bargain. And she's probably thinking, God, I wanted a toy. So as you read the story, you think Naomi's story has been basically about loss. And you would be right at this point. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. She lost her home, her land. So this story is essentially about loss. But here's a really important question for you this morning. And I wrote it on your outline because I want us to consider this question does the story have to be about loss? And then make it personal. Does your story, whatever you may be going through, have gone through or are dealing with or will deal with, does it have to be about loss? 
Naomi lived a lot of incredible pain. But is that what it has to be about, this story? You know, a guy named Gerald Sitzer, he was in a car accident, and he was hit by a drunk driver. He was in his minivan, and in that accident, he lost three generations of his family. He lost his mother, his wife, and his young daughter. And to top things, he wasn't even hurt. He wrote a book about this journey called A Grace Disguised. And this is what he says. And I, and I wrote this for you, and I want to read this for you, and I think it's on your outline as well, because it's one thing for me to stand up here and say that, but it's another thing for a guy that went through it to say that. And this is what he said. The experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of our story. The defining moment can be our response to the loss. In other words, we don't get to decide what roles we play in life, but we can decide how we play those roles that we are given. So you reach this point in loss, you reach this point in your story, in your journey, where you have to decide if your story is going to be defined by the loss, or could, just maybe, could your story be about something else? Could it be something different? And I know that's hard because we're always focused on what's right in front of us. I've been there. There's this box and, and we want what's inside the box and then we open it and we're disappointed and then it's like you get a sweater instead of what's, what you want and it, it's not what you have hope for because you wanted a toy. But here's what you're going to see in this story. If there are two words that can describe Naomi's life, it's not loss. It's abiding hope. Because this story is about redemption. Once Ruth and Naomi arrive in this adventure to Bethlehem, Ruth goes into the fields and she begins picking up grain left behind by the farmers because it was the barley harvest season. Now, you're probably thinking, like, why'd she have to do that? Because she had to do something to, to eat. She had to have some work. And nobody else could support them. You know, the welfare system at the time, in the day of Israel... It was a law that was required the farmers to basically just leave the leftover grain on the floor for the poor people could come behind them and pick them up. It was kind of the welfare system of the time. It's no different than today if somebody wants to collect, you know, aluminum cans to sell them, you know, to make ends meet. That, that's very similar. So Ruth starts picking up the leftover grain. And it was there that Ruth gets noticed by another main character in the story. He's a wealthy single guy who had never married, whose name was Boaz, the owner of the field. Now, Boaz takes notice of her, and in the Bible, chapter 2, verse 3, it says this, So she went out and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And I just have to tell you, I love this, this phrase right now. It's just so subtle, and it's, you know, the writers just threw it in there like if it didn't matter. But as it turned out, I mean, that just, uh, God is doing so many amazing things. And as it turned out, wouldn't you know it, coincidentally, totally by chance, right? As it turned out, it just so happened that she ends up working in the field of Boaz. This wealthy, single, godly guy who had never married, who unbeknownst to Ruth, as it turns out, was a relative of her late husband. 
Well, to make a long story short, Boaz notices Ruth. He likes her, he befriends her, and when Naomi, the mother-in-law, finds out what's going on, she decides to play Cupid, and then he, she tells Ruth, hey, here's what I want you to do tonight. You clean up, you put on your best perfume, you put on your prettiest clothes, and then I want you to go into the barn where Boaz is working, and after he's done eating, he's going to go to sleep, and, he, and I want you to lie down in the barn next to him, and then he will tell you what to do from there. Now, you're probably thinking, why is she telling her to do this? It's kind of weird, but it's not what you think. It's, a, it's the farthest thing from a hookup here. She's actually telling her to prepare herself as a bride and to make herself known that she's available and she's interested. She's actually a very liberated woman. But listen to what happened next, and I'm going to read it from the Living Bible paraphrase because I think it, it tells it best. It says, suddenly around midnight, Boaz awakened, sat up startled. There was a woman lying at his feet. Can you imagine the surprise? And he says, who are you? He demanded. You know, remember, it's kind of beginning to be morning. It's dark. He, he's probably just, you know, wiping away the sleep from his eyes. And it is I, sir, Ruth, she replied. Make me your wife according to God's law, for you are my close relative. Thank God for a girl like you, he exclaimed. Don't worry about a thing, my child. I'll handle all the details for everyone who knows what a wonderful person you are. Now, at this point, isn't this a great story? I mean, it really does have so many implications, especially when it comes to Christmas. You see, Boaz is what is called throughout the book of Ruth as the guardian redeemer. It's a very important term to, to our talk this morning. See, there is this law of the guardian redeemer that states that when a man fell into hard times and he's forced, forced to sell his land, his nearest relative, what was called the guardian redeemer, had the right to buy the land, to step in and purchase the land and keep that property under the relative's family, and it would keep it from coming under the ownership of another you know, tribe or whatever. And I know that seems weird, but it, it, it's, it's, it, that's the way it was set up in the day. So again, so that property wouldn't be lost to another tribe or another people or another family. So Boaz comes along and says, you know, I will take the property of Elimelech and I will take responsibility for Ruth. Because the law also stated that he had to take responsibility for the family members at the time. Now, if you think about it, it's not a big deal to us. But if you think about that culture, it was a huge deal to take on Ruth. Especially when you consider that Ruth was from a foreign land, a pagan culture, a Moabite woman. That means that there was no other man in that town that would want someone like Ruth. But Boaz, by doing this, is essentially saying, you know, I will love who no one else will love. I will care for who no one else will care for. I will redeem who no one else will redeem. I will be her guardian redeemer, he says. And this made me think about something. I mean, I really thought about our church, Canyon Hills. And I just want to take this moment around to just thank you for being a boys-like church and taking the lead among other churches in caring for the least of these and helping people in Mexico get an education and you're feeding them and you're training pastors in the Philippines and you're planting churches, you're a Boaz-like church. You are a guardian redeemer. What that also made me think of is, how many here are nearsighted like me? That means you 
need glasses or lenses because you can see near, but you can't see far? Well, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm a, thanks Linda, I'm embarrassed to admit that for a long time, I found it completely comfortable to just walk by millions of people in this world who live in the margins without a thought. In fact, you might think very negatively of me right now, but I'm being honest with you. In fact, I watched all the TV shows and documentaries about all the global needs, and, but I was nearsighted. I'd seen horrific images of child's, uh, children that were dying and malnourished, and I li listened to the pleas of organizations and their ministries, and they wanted involvement and they wanted donations, but the truth is, at that time, it didn't even faze me. I was nearsighted. But it wasn't until I got, and I started getting on airplanes and going to places like South America and Mexico and the Philippines and seeing people living in dire need that really penetrated me like, honestly, nothing else ever has. You know, there are moments that I will never, ever forget. In fact, I can tell you that I, I couldn't describe it. it. It wrecked me. It put a burden in my heart that I have yet to shake. And seeing with my own eyes and hearing with my own ears, even smelling with my own nose, did something for me that no video, no magazine article had ever been able to do for me before. So this morning, I just want to say thank you to you. Thank you for letting this issue wreck you too. Thank you for having a Boaz-like vision for people in this world for loving those who others wouldn't love, for caring for those who others wouldn't care for, for redeeming those who others wouldn't want to give redemption to. In fact, today, after the service, we are sponsoring the Juarez children. We're going to educate them and feed them and feed a family. And if you're interested, just visit our courtyard because you are a Boaz-like church, because you are guardian redeemers to the least of this. So thank you again for doing that. And I believe that God keeps blessing this church because you keep blessing others. Well, back to our story. Boaz makes this plan to redeem Ruth as a guardian redeemer. But actually, when you study the story, you'll notice that there was a closer relative who had the right of first refusal to buy this land. So Boaz goes to this guy who has a right of first refusal to the land. And he's probably thinking, you know, how am I going to play this? Because he, at this point, really likes Ruth. And he says, hey, buddy, there's this land you can redeem, he says, to the other relative, if you want to. But one other thing, he says, the day you buy this land, you also acquire Ruth. You remember Ruth, right? The Moabite woman, the one from the pagan culture, the one that the people that don't have no God, the dead man's widow, you want her to? And the guy at that point says, no, thank you, right? It's almost like a realtor kind of coming to you and says, I have this land and it's really cheap and it has mother-in-law quarters, except the mother-in-law is going to stay there. You want that land? <clears throat> so at that point, the guy says, you can have her. So in the last chapter of Ruth, we read chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Isn't that a beautiful story of redemption? Again, Boaz, what an amazing man. He had no legal obligation to do this. It was just pure grace. You know, what did Boaz get in return? He gets an awesome wife. 
Because you know what Boaz's life was like before this moment? It was ruthless. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> That's probably the only thing you're going to remember today anyway. So as it turns out, <laughs> as it turns out, I love that phrase, as it turns out, God is always working behind the scene. You can't see it, but as it turns out, you may even know who Boaz's mother is. Do you guys remember the Israelites when they were about to take the promised land? They, they sent two spies into Jericho, and they were housed and protected by a prostitute by the name of Rahab. As it turns out, Rahab had a son. You want to know what his name was? Boaz. As it turned out, he grew up to be a godly man, perhaps because his own mother had been from a foreign land and a foreign culture, and she changed from following pagan gods to following the one true God of Israel. Because of that, Boaz was able to show comfort and grace and protection and generosity to Ruth. And you think about the story, and it's like this Christmas present was open, and it looked really bad from the outside, right? The outside of the box, everything is bad for Ruth and Naomi. But then over time, as, as Ruth and Naomi start to look deep inside the box, they find things that they could never imagine. What I'm saying to you today is that some of you think this Christmas, you're going to get just what you want. It's just the right size. It's just the right weight. And you shake it and you decide to open it up and you tear open the package and you're anxious to see it. And all of a sudden you're, you're there with anticipation and you open it up and you're like, oh no, loss, loneliness, pain, abuse, addiction, death. This is not what you wanted. I wanted a toy. But before Naomi and Ruth gave up, they had to look inside the box. They had the son, and she conceived, and because of this guardian redeemer, Naomi gained a grandson. And she thought it was all over for the family. Both of her sons had died. But now, because of his grandson, their family outlook is completely different. Now there's this future for them, and it's going to continue. This grandson would bring a great blessing to them and ultimately would be their salvation to them and their entire family. You know, the last picture we have of Naomi in the book of Ruth is she's holding and caring for her grandson. And here are some really important words. Chapter 14, verse 17. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. You guys know the Christmas story? Naomi's great-great-grandson is King David. Ruth's great-grandson is King David. Folks, you can't always get what you want, but if you try, and if you stick in there, and if you are faithful, you may just find that you're going to get what you need. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Wow, I'm not convinced, but I amen by myself then. <laughs> Here's where it all comes together. When we get to the New Testament, chapter 1 of Matthew, that's where the Christmas story begins, and the genealogy of Jesus is the beginning. And here's what we read in Matthew chapter 1. 
Here's where it all comes together. All the names are there. We find the family tree of Jesus. Right there is Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho. Right there is the genealogy of Jesus, the mother of Boaz, who married a Moabite pagan woman, Ruth, and redeemed her as the guardian redeemer. And they had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David. And years later, in the city of Bethlehem, you know, why did, why did Jesus have to go back to Bethlehem? If you guys remember, why did Mary and Joseph go there? Because they were from this line. They had to go back to their, where their lineage was from for the census. So way down inside the box, as it turns out, Naomi and Ruth couldn't even see it. Jesus was waiting to be born from their line. And folks, that is an awesome story right there. Take that home with you. Make it your story. Have that hope that can only be found in God's word. It's amazing. So I know a lot of you can't, don't think you can make it through this Christmas season because you don't like the outside of the box. That's what's in front of you. From your perspective, you can't see anything other than what it looks like right now. And I get it. I've been there. A lot of you don't even think you can get through this Christmas season because, again, you wanted a toy. But through Jesus Christ, and here's the good news, your guardian redeemer, you can. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because eventually after he's born, he's here to bring us that hope. Eventually, where is our cross? There's no cross. That's why he came. And he knows that loss does not have to define you. But your response to the loss can. Because when Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. I want to tell you that he meant it. He's the one, the only one that can bring you hope this Christmas. And I know some of us try through Christmas presents to bring hope. And they work for a little while. But your only true hope can only lie in Jesus Christ. So I want you to think about this for a second. In your story, think about it. No matter what you've come from, no matter what loss you've experienced, no matter how much shame you may feel because of your past, think about this for a second. If God can redeem and use a prostitute and make her an important part of his story, do you not think he can redeem your story? As it turns out, he can if God can take a hopeless and helpless Naomi and Ruth and take all of their loss and all of their pain and all of their hurt and suffering and change their outlook and use them to bring the line of Jesus through them, do you not think he can change your outlook? Folks, I, I pray this morning that you would be reminded that you are sons and daughters to the Most High God heirs to his kingdom, access to all of his promises. God is here to bring you a hope this Christmas. And if you've never experienced it before, I want to invite you to just say, God, I want, I want you to be my guardian redeemer. And you'll find that when Jesus died on the cross, even for him, the story, it looked like the end of the story from the outside looking in. And again, when you started looking deep down inside we find that the box, in the box, that the, the tomb was empty. And it became a great story. That living God wants to be your guardian redeemer this Christmas season. So I'm here to encourage you. 
Don't walk out of these doors without letting Jesus be your guardian redeemer. Will you pray with me? Father, today, we're grateful for your word. First and foremost, Father, I thank you so much for these stories of redemption. Father, as it turns out, you have a plan for our lives and it's a perfect plan. It is a plan to prosper us and not to harm us. Today, for all of you here, I want you to know you don't have to face Christmas season without your guardian redeemer, without the Messiah, without Jesus Christ. Today, you could pray to him with the words that Ruth and Naomi and just say, Jesus, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Jesus, you will be my God. Loss does not have to define you, but your response to the loss can. You can respond today by saying yes to Jesus Christ who came to bring you hope. Maybe even right now, you might just want to say in your heart with your heads bowed and your eyes closed silently in your heart, just say, Jesus, be my guardian redeemer. Jesus, be my hope. If that's you, I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want you to raise your hands because I want to praise for you. I just want to pray for you. If that's you, raise your hand. I see your hand, brother. Put it, you can put it back. Then I see your hand. I see your hands. Thank you. I see your hands. Thank you. I see your hands. Anyone else? Amen. I see your hands. May the Lord bless you. God, thank you for being our great guardian redeemer. Father, thank you for this amazing story from the Bible that helps us prepare for the Christmas season. As we prepare to welcome the guardian redeemer to this world, Jesus Christ, Father, we lift up our prayers gratefully today. And in the name of our guardian redeemer, Jesus Christ, and everybody said, amen.